you want to give love to the city, that's a fact. But you're going to need help if you want to make an impact. Well endowed, you want to be well endowed with the Edmonton community. Things really happen when you find that you're well endowed. Hi everyone, welcome to the Well Endowed Podcast. I'm Elizabeth Bonking. And I'm Andrew Paul. This podcast is brought to you by Edmonton Community Foundation, and we are a proud affiliate member of the Alberta Podcast Network. Edmonton is full of generous donors who've created endowment funds at ECF. These funds generate money to support charities in Edmonton and beyond. On this podcast, we share stories from spaces where endowments and community intersect, because it's good to be well endowed. On this episode, we hear the fifth installment of our special series, It Takes a Community. That's right. Hunter and Jacqueline Cardinal of Nahayawin have worked hard to bring us some amazing conversations so far. We've heard from Paul Bellows, Nasra Adim, Linda Duncan, and Aaron Paquette. And today we're going to hear from the former CEO of Alberta Treasury Branch, Dave Moen. So without further ado, let's turn things over to Hunter. Tanse, hello. Welcome to It Takes a Community, a well-endowed podcast series about inspirational leaders and the communities of people, places, and ideas that have supported them along the way. I'm your host, Hunter Cardinal, and from a young age, I was taught that my people, the Nehiao, or Cree people, have always understood ourselves as bound together in a vast web of interconnectedness. As my career as an actor and storyteller developed, I began to cross paths with more and more incredibly accomplished people, and when asked, almost every single person time and again echoed the voices of my elders in crediting their successes to their networks of support. This podcast is my own quest to explore what it means to succeed and support each other in succeeding in an inherently interconnected world and learn how it truly does take a community. Our guest this month is Dave Mowat, who most of you already know as the previous president and CEO of ATB Financial and current supporter of the arts and city building initiatives in Edmonton and beyond. I first met Dave in a boardroom in downtown Edmonton where I spoke with him briefly one-on-one before participating in a planning meeting Dave was chairing for a project called the Commonwealth Walkway. In that small window of time, I felt like I saw a hint of what made him such an effective leader. Decisiveness, patience, and a dedication to getting to the root of the problems in order to create innovative solutions. I was so compelled by his presence and story that I knew I had to try to bring him onto this podcast, and I was delighted when he agreed. In the conversation you're about to hear, we talk about the importance of following your instincts, how vulnerability has been a crucial part of developing himself as a leader, and how technology can help solve issues affecting marginalized communities. Thanks to Dave. I walked away from this conversation believing that making and learning from mistakes is very much the work of life. Enjoy. Yeah, so I'm super stoked to have you here. Thank you so much for for making the time. Well, it's great to be here in the elaborate studio of exactly. the Edmonton Community yeah. Foundation. I'm I'm very happy that you found it. Uh, <laughs> it was a journey. It was a, a journey physically and emotionally as well. There you so. go. Well, wayfinding. You know, it's just like the walkway. You got to build something you can find. Dave and I were crying on the way here. That's how uh, how 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 truly um, lovely this journey was. So thank you. And that's the show, everyone. No, um, but uh, thank you so much, Dave. I'm. Uh, personally very stoked to be sitting with you. 
um, because growing up in Edmonton and also like coming online in Edmonton, um, being a functioning human, um, uh, right after high school, I started hearing your name pop up at the core of every single cool and meaningful project that pops up in Edmonton. And I was just like, what? How, how does that ha- How is that even possible? And, uh, and I'm really excited to um, be talking to you about like how that is possible. What, when did that start? Where did that come from? And, and more importantly, who, who taught you how to do that? Um, <laughs> so was that always a thing? Like did, was, does going far back, like where does it start in your mind? Uh, you know, I think when you're a kid, you're pretty competitive. Uh, I think I always didn't want to be known as a cliche, you know, the jock that couldn't spell or the banker that had no heart. And so I think I've always probably rebelled against what I might have been on the outside. And so you get, uh, you know, I think it's more interesting when things are multidimensional and people can be a bit of a surprise. Plus, I think you also learn that there's a lot of leverage in, you know, you can, if you're working for a bank, there's an awful lot of things you can do with that bank for the greater good of people, which ultimately uh, gets you more business. So it's that uh, kind of combining a Mm -hmm. business motive with a community motive and having them both come running together. Yeah. So when, um, when we're talking about like that idea of, of you um, growing up and not wanting to be the cliche that you appear to be, how would you describe yourself as a kid? Uh, like, what was, what was Dave like? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think as a kid and then early on yeah, yeah. into the biz, you know, uh, jobs and stuff, I'm not sure I was particularly likable. You know, it's, I mean, I had good friends and things like that, but, um, you know, when you're a, individual contributor you kind of look at me look at me look how good i am look what i can do and i don't think you're thinking as much about other people you're pretty self-centered at least i was Mm. uh, pretty self-centered and i don't know maybe that's good you know i learned how to do things i learned how to be uh successful but after a while that becomes a cliche kind of in itself Mm -hmm. and um you know i think you move to the next step is is where you realize that there's an awful lot of power and a, a, not power in power's sake, but goodness in uh, being able to leverage other people. And yeah. so uh, quickly you realize that making other people successful is quite a bit better than just making yourself successful. If if I can be part of making ten people successful you know, it's 10 times more results than if I'm just concentrating on myself. And yeah. So so I think that was the, the big transition kind of as a kid, uh, you know, maybe turning into something that looks like a leader. What were the first couple of memories where you started noticing, like, there's, there's something here that I could explore in terms of getting uh, people inspired to do something um, versus trying to do it yourself? Was there something that popped up? You know, I think a few projects... Um, you know, at a, at a variety of, you know, going right back to summer jobs. Oh, yeah. Cashing tickets at the horse races. You know, you, you can only cash so many tickets yourself. and But if you really work, you know, getting other people kind of motivated and inspired and, you know, teaching them a few tricks of the trade as to how you do this and that and to keep the lines moving. I mean, it's a very 
you know, it's very early on, uh, but you could start to see that, you know, I could make one line uh, go fast and I'd probably be pretty proud about how fast I could make it go. But, you know, if you share that knowledge about how you do this and how you make sure you don't do something wrong with five other people, you get five lines uh, going fast. And, you know, I think that kind of opened my eyes early and then, then you start looking for it. You start looking for those places where you can get a lot of people kind of going in the same direction. Was that something that came naturally to you or did you see someone doing that? You know, I don't know if it's, uh, I think I'm one of those people that always thinks things could be a little better or a little different. You know, even if you're sitting in the Safeway parking lot, I'm trying to figure out the fastest way to the exit, you know, instead of going down the line and across here and across here and across there. Um, So I think if you're always looking at everything, thinking it can be done a little bit differently, uh, then you have a... I think an eye for making things better. How you do that, then I think I would watch other people. You know, yeah. what kind of leadership styles or or how they were able to, you know, talk to people, get people to trust them, so on and so forth. So who who were some of the uh, the top people that you looked up to growing up? Like who who was uh, they could be real, they could also be fictional too. Yeah, you know, it's a, there's two really diametrically opposed. One was. Uh, you know, George Rurka, he's passed away now, but he was a miserable son of a gun. Um, he was very hard to work for, didn't say too much. Um, but the one thing was, is he was scrupulously fair. He, he gave everybody a chance. He didn't play favorites. And he uh, gave you an opportunity. Uh, but he was he was difficult. And at the other end of the spectrum, a guy named Dale Carter, um, he was the cheerleader type. He was the guy yeah. that, you know, I can remember putting, I was a young loans officer, putting a loan on his desk. And, you know, I worked all weekend on it. I put it on his desk and I'm walking by back and forth in front of his office. He hasn't touched it. He hasn't touched it. It's Tuesday. <laughs> he hasn't touched it. Finally, I go in and say, like, Dale, have you, are you going to read that? He said, oh, yeah, right. I'm not going to have time to read that. I just signed it and gave it back to me. Well, I went back and I checked that thing a hundred times, you know. So he's the guy that's going to, trust you, believe in you, and kind of fill you with confidence. And, you know, both of those people, the per- person who gives you a chance might be pretty grumpy, um, but is fair. And the other person that's looking for all the good things you can do to get you doing your best, I think both of them work. Um, not everybody wants to be treated uh, the same. But the common denominator uh, between the two is it develops uh, confidence in the person you're working with and they really, really want to do a a good job and they do a good job. So what we find is people doing their very best work and Mm. that's very powerful. So so where where did this interest in banking come from? Like, how did that start for you? I think I was always interested in Money. I, even when we were at university, we had a little loan fund. That, it wasn't loan sharking. It was, you know, we just lent it uh, to our <laughs> friends and stuff. Um, but, you know, as a banker, it's kind of being like a, a nosy parker is, is you get to see everybody's business. I went into commercial banking uh, right away. Mm. And I thought I'd stay for a while, but I'd get to see this huge range of businesses, get to see what they're like and see what I maybe wanted to do. And I think what I... I found it is that, um, you know, learning 
a little bit about a lot of things is quite fascinating and you can really pick spots that are uh, a quite interesting and b you can learn a lot and you can put it into practice like i i've met tens of thousands of business people over my career and i'm sure you know some of my own practices my own thinking ideas you know, have been shaped by by those people they're fascinating people people that run their own business hmm. was that some that um fascination of like learning uh learning essentially as much as you can about other people, how they're doing things, how they're getting to that uh, end of the, the, the parking lot quicker than other people. Was that something that uh, uh, ran in the family? Was that an interest or, or something that conversations growing up? It's interesting. Like all the kids are in our family are different. I got three brothers and sisters and mm. my uh, mom's a nurse and my dad worked for the Hudson's Bay Company. And, you know, I think I can always remember it being a very inquisitive uh, family really? you know whether it's puzzles or you know we used to play bridge which sounds pretty boring and stuff like that but it's you know for kids it's it's kind of honing your skills of deduction you know, there's all kinds of things uh, going on there but it was um you know it was a place where both my mom and dad would have encouraged my sister well my two sisters and my brother and i really to do anything we wanted they they were anxious we all have very different uh careers and so it was i think learning was probably the most uh important part there was a high value on you know making sure you got an education but it wasn't anybody pushing you it was more of a a carrot than a stick hmm. and when you're talking about that inquisitiveness like what what were family dinners like <laughs> you know, I think there was lots of uh, debates for sure. Oh yeah. You know, okay. After we had fought over the food part yeah, of yeah. it, yeah, um, the first round of debates. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Um, you know, and and as you're growing up, there there's different issues. I don't think it was really highbrow uh, discussions, but you know, as we uh, started to find our own way in the world. Um, you know, as I look at the four kids, we're all probably have a little bit different political stripes and we have a little bit different approach to life and stuff. So some pretty robust discussions. Hmm. That's so fascinating. I'm, uh, you know, what's interesting is hearing about all these ways that you can, uh, uh, these small ways of, of, of planting like that curious seed. And like what, how did that like bounce off your friends growing up? You know, I think it's kind of people talk about in marriage, people marry their opposites sometimes and things like that. And I, and I, you know, we have a pretty tight group of friends. And, you know, I'd say we're complementary uh, more than we are the same at all. And so, you know, the curiosities uh, that one might have would be different than the curiosities of another. I'm kind of thinking a small group of four friends that we have. And so it was pretty interesting because, you know, and I won't say you're doing things you're not interested in, but people, you know, Brian or Dave would take us, you know, in a different direction. And they, they would, and so you'd experience uh, something new. So it, it wasn't this homogeneous, everybody wanted to do exactly the same thing yeah. all the time. And I think that kind of broadens your perspectives. And, um, you know, I always talk to people, you should kind of just follow opportunity. I think people that plan out their life or plan out their 
you know, their careers and stuff. I, I think you could actually miss opportunity that way. You know, I think the inquisitiveness and the, the, in, the, the fact you're interested in different things, you know, like they say in business, the most valuable thing you can have is a strategic plan. And you can say that the biggest risk you have in your business is having a strategic plan. It's, you know, because if you just get into a, I want to be this, you'll miss all kinds of opportunities on the side. And ultimately, anybody's career is, is a pretty wobbly road. It goes from here to there and so on and so forth. And, and I think life is just more fulfilling if you um, kind of aim yourself, follow your nose. If there's opportunity there that's interesting, uh, go do it because you'll always be doing your very best work when you're doing something you're interested in. Was that always the case for you? Yeah, I think, you know, if I, I was going to say, if I have a fault, I have a long litany <laughs> of faults. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I think I haven't said no enough, but, you know, that might be just conventional wisdom. I think I've, by saying yes to uh, different opportunities, I think I've experienced stuff. I never would have ever got, you know, mm -hmm. you can't unwind your life. And so, you know, if you didn't walk us across the street here and, or take this job or take this promotion or change jobs or quit jobs, you would never would have met so on and so forth. So I, I think your life is, is this kind of mosaic of all of those experiences. And by saying, sure, I'll try that. Um, I think it opens doors. You didn't even have a clue were there. So what can you paint that picture of when you're like I'm I'm going to go into to banking I'm going to I'll I'll try that right um, you know it's funny I'm uh, I'm young I'm single I got a degree in international finance I'm ready to go I sent my resume to the World Bank I sent it to a bank in Europe I sent it to one of the investment houses uh, in New York and. It filtered back and filtered back, and I got a job like four blocks from my house. <laughs> Whoa. So it's, you know, and that, but that just um, started the ball rolling. You know, I lived most of my time in one place, and I got offered a transfer, new city, did that. I got offered a, a job doing something completely different, training, you know, instead of banking, training bankers instead of, banking and you know as, as I say it just started to widen the funnel of the experiences that you have and um, some of the knowledge that you pick pick up and and ultimately the people you meet you know as a, a young banker I just thought it was an absolute treat kind of talking to business people and understanding their business going out and seeing them and you know when, when you talk to business people you know, the thing they're very, the most proud of in the world is their kids and their business. Really? And, uh, you know, so it's a, it's a fascinating thing to, and you learn a lot from them. What, what are some of the things that come to mind for like the, the key takeaways from like when you first started, like learning about how this world works? You know, the, the one thing that is the hardest for all of us to do, um, is to trust your instincts. And we overrule our instincts all the time, like in our gut. You know, you know, if you're doing something with somebody and you have a kind of a bad feeling about it, lots of times we override that judgment or that instinct and we go ahead with it and it turns out to be not a very good deal. On, and on the plus side, if you get a good feeling uh, for something, 
there's some people that totally overthink it, they overanalyze it, and poof, the opportunity's gone because they just, you know, analysis paralysis. So I think it's that happy median of when things aren't right and you can feel it in your stomach, you should do something about it. And when things feel good, you should move quickly. And that's, uh, you know, when I see the very most successful uh, business, and I'm using business people, but I can change this to community leaders and things like that. But the people who are successful act quickly on their instincts. And the mm. rest of us, you know, some of the biggest mistakes I've ever made is taking too long to fire somebody. Really? You know, because you, know, well, you internalize it. You think, oh, God, I'm not a very good boss. You know, I'm not inspiring them. I'm not a good leader. You know, I'm not giving them the right feedback because he keeps doing this, 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 and this. And, and in your gut, you kind of know the person's just not a fit. And they're, and for whatever reason, we don't act on it. We kind of wait for there's corroborating evidence. Like, I know that, I know that, I know that. And then somebody will come in and say, do you know what that person did? They did this. And all of a sudden, somebody else, you know, causes me uh, to act. And it's, it's hard, particularly in that sense, when something doesn't feel right, you need to act to shut it down or not do it or extricate yourself or something like that. And so those are the hard ones. And those are kind of gut-wrenching. And yeah. it's never easy to do stuff like that. But it's the right thing to do. Um, the other side isn't as momentous, but I think there'd be an awful lot of opportunity people have missed in their lives uh, by not trusting their instincts. And, you know, how many people have you ever talked to that say, geez, you know, I had the opportunity to do this and I didn't do it and I sure wish I, I had a... And so I, I think it's... Um, and I don't have a, a super clear answer because here I am is I'm in my early 60s and I still don't always trust... Uh, my instincts, but you know, I think if I have any uh, advice to my own kids and uh, younger people is that you know your instincts are pretty good. You know yourself, and uh, and it, and if you get this range of experience in your life, uh, your instincts will continue to get better and better and better. And uh, I would trust them. It's a world where we can fix stuff later. We're we're kind of worried about making mistakes sometimes, so. When did you start being conscious of this idea of like, I needed to go with my impulse there? You know what? I did not even clock that when I was making that decision. Was there a particular moment where that started happening to you? Um, I, I think the, uh, well, two things. One is, you know, I saw business people, customers, um, you know, even some politicians and stuff. It seems like they make a decision on not enough information. Like they've just but, you know, they're following their instincts and things work out well for them. I think the thing where you really start to get confidence is when you trust your instincts and you're wrong, um, but you realize it's not the end of the world to fix it. What was a moment like that where, where, for you? Because that's uh, huge, like, to, to, to look at the consequences. That's something that I struggle with is, like, I, I don't necessarily want to make a decision for then the consequences of if it's wrong. Right. Which is, like, so counterintuitive, but I'm just, my, my brain is doing math. I'm just like, no, it's better if you don't make a decision, you don't follow your in, in, instincts at all so that you don't get the consequences. Like, what, what was that for you? Uh, I can remember one instinct of, one instance of, you know, hiring somebody and 
you know, so I, I thought it was the right thing. And so I went ahead and did it. And honestly, in the first week, it was pretty evident it wasn't a very good decision. <laughs> so you kind of take a great big breath and screw up your courage and, you know, talk to the person and say, you know what, this just, this just isn't it. And she knew before I went to talk to her. Like, it, and that's almost always the case. People know way before you do that they're not right for the job. And so, you know, she was appreciative of me being honest to her. She hadn't, you know, done too many things to change her life for this. So, so it wasn't a, and I, I wasn't say, saying everybody's happy, but she wasn't kind of crushed and she wasn't mad and stuff like that. And, and it just realized that, yeah, you went ahead and made a decision. Um, but also you could see how you can kind of unwind that. Even, you know, I've bought houses that, you know, in the end, it's not the right street or, or whatever. Um, so you sell it. And, but that seems like such a huge transaction. It's the biggest thing we ever do in our life and stuff like that. But, um, and so, so I think a couple of, it's funny, eh, that the thing that gives you confidence is a couple of wrong decisions because uh, you see you can fix them. And I think that's the biggest thing that people, it's that fear of making a mistake. And uh, so, so seeing that we can fix those mistakes. And I'm sure there's uh, other positive ones where you do make the right decision and it's great and you kind of build on it and build on it and build on it. But I, but I think what really you know, stops too many people is that fear of making a mistake and, and mistakes are relatively easy to fix. Hmm. Especially if you have the words, I'm sorry, or, gee, that wasn't a very good idea in your vocabulary. Because way too often we hang on to, you know, you see it in politics, you see it in businesses, we hang on to bad ideas way too long, you know, instead of, you know, saying, geez, <laughs> I kind of screwed up on that one. Mm -hmm. I'm going to do better. So you talked about um, a stage in your life where it was um, you as an individual leader. And like in conversations that you and I have had before, you were talking about that being a point in your life where you were trying to be the best that you could be and trying to get that attention. And I, I was curious if you could expand a little bit more about like what was going on for you there. Cause that's what I'm, what I heard was a huge, like, I don't know that that's a big thing of just kind of accepting where you're at and then, and then taking the next step. And I'm curious if you could expand a little bit more on that. On the next step. Yeah. Or? Well, yeah. Cause that's an interesting transition. Because, you know, you go from, like, doing the best that you can to a leadership position, and then you're looking at how you can essentially affect other people to do big things. But you have to kind of make that um, conscious that you, you're, not, you're not sufficient the way you are, and you have to make that change. Right, yeah. What was that like for you, and, like, who was around you? Like, what was going on? You know, that's super fascinating. Because that's a huge – because some people that I've seen – don't necessarily do that change ever in their lives. And right. They kind of just stay that they plateau in terms of what they could be, yeah. Um, and the effect that they could have on other people. So you know that's pretty huge. And I think it's um, so you get doing the best you can. You're pretty good at, at what you do. Um, and I think then the realization comes over is that like there's only so many hours in the day, and there's only so much you can humanly do. And if you're building widgets, you know, there's only so many ways to improve building widgets. And so, so at some point you get to the spot where, um, 
you know, that's rewarding. I'm a great craftsman and the widgets I turn out are the best in the country. And that's what I want to do. And so there's nothing, it's not good people and bad people. That's just an individual producer. Hmm. But I think what, um, what you can see, or at least what I saw is that, you know, there's impact you can have with one person doing the task. Um, but if you get more and more people uh, involved in doing that task, you can have much more leverage. But I think the most important thing, you know, like you hear a, a lot of talk about diversity and stuff uh, now, which I, I'm a total believer in, but not just to tick boxes and stuff yep. like that. What When you have a group of people working with you in a team, they will think of things you will never think of ever. So like I just said earlier, when you, you know, there's only so many ways to improve making a widget. Well, that's my brain. And so as long as it's just me, there's a hundred percent ceiling because that's what, what I believe or the way I see it. But if I put 10 people around me and all of a sudden one person's an artist and they could see how something could be shaped this way, they'll just think differently. We have a guy who works for us in our commercial mortgages does some of the biggest deals in the province. He's a concert pianist, and I swear to goodness, he looks at things differently than other people. Just comes at stuff completely differently. So I think that it's not just. I mean, it's important uh, if you can inspire uh, and get ten people motivated and doing their best work. I think there's more that happens. So so there's that first level of leverage. But I think the most rewarding part of it is when somebody in that group thinks of something I would have never thought of in a million years. You, really? could have, you could have left me for a million years and I would never have thought of that. And then that builds and then somebody else thinks of something they'd never think of and all of a sudden you're in a totally uh, different spot. Are those like big changes in thought or are they small? Like what are typically do those look like? You know, I, th- I they're they're big and and small like there's you know i can remember one recently is you know banks have been putting out annual reports since the beginning of time and they're all paper-based and they're incredibly boring but we put nice pictures in them and we do nice photography and we have stories and things like that and you know a couple of our people said like why do we print these things out let's do it digitally and there's nothing really new and digital and stuff but all of a sudden as soon as it's not paper-based and it's digital that and like there's depth every page there's you know double click and there's uh an old new explanation and so all of a sudden you know those kinds of reports are full of words nobody understands they're full of concepts that are complex and stuff and all of a sudden we had new tools to be able we can visually show people what a risk appetite might look like or something like that and it, you know it's so, so I think that's it's not small but you know if you didn't have a diverse group of people sitting around the table talking about what are we going to do with the annual report you would have never uh, ever got there you know right through to you know we did uh, there's something in Edmonton called Four Directions which is a, a bank uh, down at Boyle Street uh, services and things and um, we were interested in providing banking services. But I think, you know, we would have kind of just gone 
down a pretty ordinary route. But we had a couple of uh, technical people uh, in the room. And, and one of the things, uh, the Boyle Street would be a very poor, probably the poorest postal code in Edmonton. Uh, it's 90% homeless. Um, and one of the big things uh, about being homeless and being and banking is they the two don't go together very well because in banking you need your ID and you you need an address and stuff and and lots of times that ID gets stolen or gets lost or whatever and and so you find yourself not able to operate a bank account and in this world not having a bank account is systemically marginalizes like. Even if you want to get a job, there's not many employers that are willing to write you out a check these days. They want to deposit it in your bank account. If you don't have a bank account, they're just not interested in doing the extra work uh, to have you as an employee. So anyway, long story as we're looking to do this. And one, uh, one of our technology people looked at it completely differently as we're kind of figuring, okay, what are our policy going to be on ID and stuff like that? And, and they just popped up, well, you know, if we used irises, or if we used fingerprints, nobody would ever need to have uh, ID. And even then, we're kind of, oh, God, people are going to worry the man's got my fingerprint or something like that. Um, but, you know, it's, uh, I think that was the turning point. Like right now, if you walk into four directions at uh, Boyle Street, there's people that come in and put their finger down or look their iris into the thing. And nobody can argue with them. That's you. And there's not many places a lot of those people, you know, don't get hassled. You know, you don't have ID to prove who you are. Well, my fingerprint proves who I am. And it's irrevocable, kind of that. That's me. And so so there, there's something I think we would have potentially come up with a pretty ordinary, maybe even boring, maybe even not workable uh, solution. But somebody, you know, looking at it from a completely different perspective solved I think a kind of social systemic issue with a little hunk of technology. That's who, huge. Who knew? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. And you know, one thing that's coming up is I, I'm hearing a lot about um, having the importance of having a team to like look at things from a different perspective um, to give you that that sense of opportunity, the the to expand the the possibilities. For you, throughout your life, did you have certain people that fulfilled that role for just you in your personal life, um, in your you know journey throughout life? Like, who was that, and, and what did that look like? I, you know, for me, like, definitely like going down to the River Valley um, has been huge. Um, also, like, my sister has been like hugely important in my life. Um, older sisters tend to typically know what to do um, and and they're very they're they're great like that but like for you how did you get that direction you know i had a um you know i, I think our family came together more like my mom and dad had my sister and then me 18 months apart and then 10 years later they had another daughter and um, another son, you know, same family and everything else. But so they, they were kind of almost more like cousins, you know, like I left home when Andrew was in grade two, you mm. know, so, um, so it really has been coming um, back together uh, as a family, as we all kind of got careers and things like started to see a little bit uh, more of each other and appreciate each other. Um, and I have some very close friends that have been my friends 
you know, since I can remember, you know, grade school and stuff like that. And, you know, I think they're, they're the people that, um, you know, don't stand in judgment. You know, I've, we've all made mistakes. We've had bonehead moves. And, and so, you know, if you make another bonehead move, you're not going to lose your friend over it. And so they'll, and plus they'll, kind of speak truth to you like they'll tell you it was a bonehead move where somebody else um might not and then you know i think as you uh as you find your way you start to develop professional teams and community teams you know we did we lit the high level uh bridge and you know there was uh, Glenn Kubish, who helped, uh, Barry James, who helped, and you know, I shouldn't start listing people, because but there was a lot of people, and they kind of came together as a community team. And again, everybody saw things a little bit differently, and we, we never, you know, Tammy Pidner, we never would have got it done, you know, without Tammy or Barry or, or Glenn. They all kind of added a component that magically was... You know, when that piece of the puzzle goes kind of click and yeah. all of a sudden you got the whole border done. Um, that's kind of the way that was. So, so you form those teams. You know, we're doing the Commonwealth Walkway right now. Same kind of thing. You know, we've talked to you. We've talked to others. And those same kind of teams form inside uh, an organization. And, you know, I think the common denominator of all the things I've talked about is you know, teams made up of people who think differently. I, I think not surrounding yourself with people who think just like you, you know, when people think exactly like you, it's more like a gang than it is a, a team. And so I, I think that is uh, important and you quickly realize that it expands your own thinking. So inside a, a business, you know, you really, and it's hard to do, but you're working hard at, you know, trying to create teams inside the organization where you've got exactly the right people and the kind of different kinds of thinking. And it's not got a lot to do with rank. It's got a lot to do with you can bring this so you're kind of an equal member of the team. And, you know, over the years, I've seen stuff done that we never, ever, ever thought we could do. Hmm. And it's... uh it's really just by getting the right people and taking advice uh, from people who know what they're talking about. One thing that's been uh, coming up a lot as like a lesson that apparently I have to learn is <laughs> this, uh, do I have to, um, is the importance of uh, like going through the process of asking for help, knowing that like you need to clock that, like you will need to have help. Um, for me, like I noticed that that was like really, um, difficult. And like, I went through this whole period of actually very, I'm still going through it, but, uh, uh, this period of not wanting to ask for help because of the fear of, um, what I'm experiencing is not normal. And the reason that I have for that is because no one else is talking about it. So like a really big thing was like, I'll wake up and, you know, I, I, I'll feel immediately awful and like an imposter. And I'm just like, I have nothing to show for like the 25 years that I've been here. And it, even the stuff that I do have is all lies. And like, I feel like I'm getting more incompetent as I continue to wake up day after day after day. And uh, my sister 
was like, oh yeah, I, I struggle with that. And I was like, what? And he's like, what, what helps is like asking other people about that too. So then I, I talked to uh, one of my close friends and, and mentors and I was just like, do you feel that? And then he was like, yeah, that gets worse every single day. <laughs> um, was that ever a thing for you? Or like, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think, you know, I think there's even something they call imposter syndrome. Like, So I, I think everybody has that, at least I, I certainly do. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you know, some days, one day, somebody decided I could be the CEO of ATB, you know, it's 5,500 people that work there, and you're thinking, yeah, I don't know. Hope nobody finds out. I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. <laughs> and you're, you know, certainly the reasons they chose you start to come to be. But I think, you know, you say, I'm going to have to learn this. Here's the bad news. It never goes away. Mm. Um, here's the good news is, you know, I th- and you already have it, but it's it's that ability to show yourself uh, vulnerable. And I think that's, uh, and I don't know if it's, I, I was going to say it's harder for guys. I, I, I see women having as much trouble with it. Maybe they're a little bit better communicators than us. We do the guy thing of, yeah, yeah, we don't know what we've agreed to. But, um, cause it's, it's, cause you're actually going to go through, we all, we all go through, uh, situations where, you know, we can say we're sorry. We can ask for help. We can be vulnerable and stuff. But actually, then you'll get to a spot where you're the leader, and you actually will convince yourself that they expect me to know the answers. So I shouldn't say I don't know because I'm the boss, and they don't really want a boss that doesn't know the answer. Again, that's not true. Uh, I mean, if you don't know any of the answers, you shouldn't be the boss. But, you know saying, gosh, I don't know, what would you do? I, I don't know what that is. Or, man, every time that ha- like I feel really weird when that's happening. And, and like so many times out of 10, the person beside me, yeah, I, I feel that way too. And, and it, it, especially when you're expected to be the leader, that creates a bond uh, between you and that person because, you know, they, they know that, you're willing to ask for help. You're not afraid to talk about your feelings. And, um, and what that does is, is two things. One is it makes you a kind of real and approachable, uh, leader. Um, but it also opens the door for them to do that too. And, you know, when you look at all the mental health issues and stuff we got in our society right now, that might be the most important door you could ever open uh, for people is, them giving them the safety to talk about what they probably need to talk about when you're at when when they're like hey you want to you want to be the the leader of this organization (laughs) you're just like uh uh (laughs) (laughs) when you get to that point who do you turn to for help and like what does that help look like because for me like if i'm thinking about like okay hunter like you you've heard all your life from your culture like support your community you know, make sure you can do that. Um, for me, thinking about like how Hunter can support Dave right now in his life, I'm just like, well, I, I don't really have that much to offer, but what does help look like for you, especially when you're in that position where you're operating on that level? Yeah. You know, my dad told me, uh, once, you know, when you get a new job, uh, shut up and, uh, 
walk around for 30 days. You know, because so, so often people, um, you know, they just think you're expected to know everything. You're expected to have new ideas. You're expected to have answers to stuff. And I think, you know, there's so many things out there. There's books that'll tell you to do a 100-day plan and stuff like that. And, and I think there's so many mistakes made in 100-day plans that, uh, you know, because it's just this overzealousness um, and it puts pressure on yourself to have all the answers, which are lots of times poorly uh, thought out. Because there isn't that much wrong in the world today. Like, it's not like if somebody moves you to be in charge of this Starbucks or something like that, um, you're gonna have to change everything. But lots of people go in and all of a sudden they're gonna change stuff. Um, so I think it's, it's um, what creates success, what builds that team. And, and you've been given the job um, for your leadership capabilities, not how well you make coffee or, or whatever it might be. And so talking to the people, listening to them, uh, builds that bond between you and them. And in that period of time, you will learn that the simplistic change you were going to make isn't, wasn't a very smart one. And, and you'll, you'll even learn other things that maybe could be different. And people saying, you know, if, we all, if only we had this, this, and this, things would be a lot better. So I, I think it's that, that willingness to open our ears. You know, I heard someone uh, say the other day that, you know, we have to get to be better listeners. And I've always thought that means I should just listen to you. But what he was really talking to is, is listening without biases. You know, like as soon as I hear you say a few words, I, I already have an idea on that or I already have. Yeah. <laughs> and so I think that listening without bias is some of the most valuable thing we can learn. And, and I'm not very good at it. I'm a pretty judgmental uh, person. I go to solutions too fast. Me too, yeah. You know, yeah, you know, I'm the guy, you haven't even finished the question. I have the answer. <laughs> <laughs> Sit down, I got this, yeah. Right, yeah. Yeah, so it's, and that's, you know, that's a constant, you know, my whole life I've, uh, you know, you know, you just have to almost be standing on your own foot um, or holding your own hand on the table, fingers on buzzers kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, all this stuff wraps up to, you know, being good listener, being vulnerable, and, uh, you know, creating a team that can think of things you can't think of. Who is a person that you often go to for some sort of support or guidance now? Or it doesn't have to be a person, it could be a thing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I reflect a, a lot kind of on my own you know, with a little bit of music playing in the background or something. What kind uh, of music? Yeah. Uh, actually, recently, I've been listening to kind of ballad jazz. Oh, yeah. You know, so it's, uh, which is pretty cool because it just kind of sets you back on your heels and makes you realize the world's a whole lot bigger place than mm. what I was just thinking was the most important thing uh, in the world. Um and I don't have anyone, you know, I could talk about, you know, we got 
three kids I learned from them, you know, yeah. all the hipster stuff that's uh, going on, you know, my wife, my uh, friends at work. Um, you know what? I think along those lines, the one thing that I've always, you know, worked really hard at is, um, you know, really having multiple sources of people I can talk to. And so, you know, any place I've ever worked, I know the men and women in the mailroom as well as I know all the vice presidents and I know the receptionists down at the main branch and and those are the people that if you get to know them, they're kind of fountains of information, you know. Like if something's going wrong in an organization and you're getting returns of this and that, you know, those people in the mailroom can tell you a lot about what's going, you know, God, we, we all the, all the mistakes come from branch number, whatever, whatever, whatever. Um, and, and so you're not trying to catch people out. You're just trying to get a perspective that's broad. Like we're so polarized right now, like we're this, it's right or it's wrong. And I think when all you have is one source of information, it's right and everything else is wrong. And when you have 10 or 50 sources of information, all the shades of gray are in the middle. And you realize that is not a black and white issue. There's all kinds of reasons why I thought that was wrong, but there's reasons um, why, why we do that. And so, you know, finding your way uh, through that to build a perspective that, um, you know, takes into account the fact that things aren't just uh, black and white is pretty important. And, you know, to explain that in a few words, you know, it gives me my bullshit protectors uh, yeah. in the organization. Is So once once you have those perspectives, you have people you can talk to, they've given you, you know, when people come to you with one of those black and white, well, this is wrong, we got to do this, you kind of have a pretty good sense of, well, I hear what you're saying, but maybe we got to think about a broader range of topics and stuff. And, and you might not know that if you didn't have that wide range of, of perspectives. What I'm hearing is like, you have to have that ability or not that ability you, you start or I don't actually know if you start there but there's two things having the ability to reflect internally about what's going on so you develop that capacity to be like that's eh, bullshit um, and you also have a diversity of, of people around you for perspectives exactly yeah and and the making those people feel comfortable that they'll tell you the truth yeah you know the you know, when you're a leader, whether you're a leader in the band or whether you're the director of a play or whether you're a bank manager or the CEO of a company, the most valuable thing you have is people's willingness to tell you the truth. Because hmm. if you're the director of the play and everybody's telling you it's great and it's really a piece of crap, you know, you're going nowhere. <laughs> and people are pretty polite. And so you somehow working hard to put them at ease so that they're, um, you know, if you're not judgmental of them, they'll be prepared to give you some of that information back, knowing that they're not going to be judged or taken out behind the barn and swatted or something. Yeah, exactly. How do you do that for yourself? Because I find that hard of like providing enough space for me to actually be honest with myself. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard. And it's, 
you know, one of the things we coined, and I'm sure we didn't coin it, somebody else would have coined it, is that um, courageous conversations. Uh, and, and really, it's, it's just like learning to do the high jump or learning how to play tennis or whatever is you just got to exercise the whole idea of you know giving giving good feedback because telling somebody ah you did a great job up there you know they come off stage and you and they didn't really do a good job (laughs) and you're not your job isn't to say you did a crappy job you know it's it's learning things like you know how'd you think you did tonight you know how, how was that for you or something so, so you're it's genuine interest and mm-hmm. it's not psycho babble you know you're not trying to do the psychiatrist uh thing but it's it's trying to find um ways to build on their own perceptions and now i'm going all the way back to trusting that person had an instinct they didn't do very well tonight and so if you can cut somehow tease that out of them um you can get them talking and all of a sudden you're giving really good and valuable feedback. And, you know, now it is starting to sound like psychiatry. Like, but, like I don't think psychiatrists solve our problems. I think they get us to talk about our own problems and we solve them ourselves. Just cost you 150 bucks an hour. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good deal. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I, you know, I think that's the same way as is all too often we, we get in our corners is. And so it really isn't about, being in corners it's about coming together and you know getting people if there's something you think you can give them feedback on probably not being prescriptive in the feedback you give but getting them to talk about that themselves is quite a bit more powerful probably than you just saying something Mm -hmm. that's a bit prescriptive one of my last questions is you talk about these um, ideas that you've like picked up along the way, and I'm curious about where the majority of them come from. Like, are they in response to conversations you have with people? Are they way after the fact, and it's you just mellowing out to some jazz, um, or is that is it a different a mix of those processes or something different? You know, sometimes it's something I've seen, and I've seen it somewhere else, or read about it and you know say like let's give this a try and you know we have you know they on some of the talk shows they had stupid pet tricks and and i think they have stupid ceo ideas as well so so there's lots i i got an idea every day kind of thing and and luckily we had enough people around us to say you know that's kind of a dumb idea dave (laughs) and so that wasn't the best source of them. So sometimes, you know, because, and I'm not above, you know, you see something, you know, in another country or something like that. That's where Light the Bridge came from. Like if you go to Europe, all the bridges are lit and they look so cool and they're, you know, they create something at night. And so that's, uh, so that's somebody else's idea. But lots of times um, it comes from really just, harnessing people's initiatives. Like at ATB, there's, uh, we got a bank for the cultural industries. So it's staffed by playwrights and musicians and, and, and exclusively it's to deal with customers who are in the cultural industries. Cause you know, people who are, 
who get a paycheck every second day working at a bank or working at a insurance company, they fit into the banking mold pretty well. But somebody who has a gig every month or a sculptor who gets commissioned and it's going to take six months to do the work and gets paid, they don't fit into the banking mold very well. And so, but that was just a conversation with one of our marketing people who was actually a musician himself. And we were talking about this and he kind of said, you know, why don't we do this? And we just said, sure, go ahead and do it. And, and I, and it's, so it's not necessarily pushing your own ideas. It's, um, really listening for ideas in the organization and then putting them at the people who had that initiative. Cause that's where execution it's, it's execution. Ex I could tell you all of the things ATB is doing, uh, and, it's really about whether you could execute or not. I would, couldn't care less if you knew all the strategies kind of thing because our sense is we can probably execute uh, better uh, than others. And so putting it at the feet of if you came up with the idea and Hunter says, we should start a bank for the cultural industries. And I said, sure, Hunter, let's go. Why don't you do it? Um, you know, all of a sudden, you there's something in you that's going to try and do that uh, as well as you possibly can. you got to build the right team around you, and so you don't set people up to fail or anything like that. But that gets a whole host of ideas. So, you know, people can say that, yeah, there's some pretty cool things that we've done over, I'll bet you we had hundreds of things we tried and didn't work or cut, cut your losses early and stuff like that. But that's, I think, having that whole portfolio of, A, people willing uh, to say, let's do this, and then having a willingness to kind of jump in the pool and see, because you learn an awful lot uh, from your mistakes, and I know everybody uh, says that, but it couldn't be more true. Like, we're experimenting with um, artificial intelligence and some Bitcoin stuff and distributed ledger and things, and, mm -hmm. you know, unless you said, yes, let's try that, we wouldn't, you know, a year ago we started doing some of that and we wouldn't know what we know today if we hadn't just started. So it's, it, it's really pulling the ideas from the whole organization and finding ways to support them. Thanks so much to Hunter and Jacqueline Cardinal for bringing us that thoughtful conversation. And thanks to Dave Mowat for sharing his time. As always, we'll be sure to have the links in our show notes so you can learn more about our guests from today. We'll be releasing the final edition of It Takes a Community on November 1st, so be sure to tune in to hear from the wonderful Dr. Patricia Makokis. Well, listeners, that brings us to the end of the show. Thanks so much for tuning in. It means a lot to us. If you like the show, share it with a friend. Share it with all of your friends. And leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Those reviews help new listeners find us, plus we really appreciate your feedback. We're also on Facebook, too. You can share your thoughts and check out pictures there. Thanks again for being such incredible listeners. We've been your hosts, Elizabeth Bonking and Andrew Paul. Until, Until next time. The Well Endowed Podcast is produced by Edmonton Community Foundation and is an affiliate member of the Alberta Podcast Network. The show is edited by Lisa Pruden. You can visit our website at thewellendowedpodcast.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes. And follow us on Twitter at the ECF. Our theme music is by Octavo Productions. And as always, don't forget to visit Edmonton Community Foundation at ecfoundation.org. Well Endowed.